Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome back to the Reasonable Doubt podcast. My name is Rob Rosen. I'm the creator and executive producer of Reasonable Doubt. And I am Detective Chris Anderson, retired homicide investigator and co-host of Reasonable Doubt. And I'm Fatima Silva, criminal defense attorney and co-host of Reasonable Doubt. All right, you can see us every Monday night, 10 p.m. on Investigation Discovery. And today we're gonna talk about the Stephen Chabin case. Now, if you haven't watched it yet, all we do is spoilers. There's nothing but spoilers. So please hit pause on this, go back, watch the episode, and then come back to us because we're really going to get into the nitty gritty of this case. And I don't know how you guys feel, but I would say in a season of tough cases, this was probably the toughest. Yeah, this is a is a case where we, we don't even know if this lady was murdered. So, you know, that was the hardest portion of it. We couldn't get past step one in order for us to get back, get to step two or three or four. You know, the, the, the number one reason why we are here is because this man has been convicted of murdering his mother-in-law. And when you have medical examiners and even you know, our medical examiners that can't determine, make a real determination as to whether or not she was murdered or not, it makes things much, much harder for us. It's ridiculous because you don't want to make assumptions in the court of law, and that's exactly what happened. We have different, different MEs have stated different causes of death. Uh, and then you have all, our ME we bring in... And he can't even actually say it was murder. That was extremely problematic for us because despite all the other evidence, we have to start with that. That is the first piece of evidence we have to start with and we have to figure out before moving on to whether this person was suspect, their behavior, motive, all of the above. So because we didn't even have that to begin with, of course, we had to continue our, on in our investigation to find out more information for ourselves to see if we could possibly clear up whether it was more likely murder or not. But ultimately, we have to rely on these experts. And it seems that from the start, the first person who conducted the autopsy to the second person who had reviewed it, everyone keeps changing the cause of death and nobody seems very certain. So how could we be so certain? So ultimately, that led us to a lot of heated dialogue that week on this case. All right. So if you're still with us, uh, I got to assume that you have watched the show. All the same, before we go on and get into a lot more of the analysis of what went into Chris and Fatima's decision, here's a little bit of background on the Stephen Chabin case. Las Vegas, June 2007. Stephen Chabin and his girlfriend, Dorota, get married. 
June 13th, Chicago. The newlyweds come home to tell Dorota's mom, Irina, the good news. She is not happy about it. June 18th, just five days later, 62-year-old Irina is found dead in her bathtub. She's been murdered. Three months later, police move in and arrest the victim's new son-in-law, Stephen Chabin. 2011. Chabin goes on trial. The prosecution's case is mostly circumstantial. They argue he killed Irina for money, for her life insurance policy. Also, so he and his new wife could move into her condo. The jury convicts. Stephen Chabin is now serving a 45-year sentence with no chance of parole. When you guys sat down and you met the family members and you had Tammy, the sister, who seems very devoted and very loyal to her brother, and then you had Dorota. And Dorota, uh, think about this for a second, she is the convict's wife, the victim's daughter, and the prosecution's star witness. She's also at some point a possible suspect. This is the first time we have ever interviewed someone who's a loved one of a victim, loved one of the convict, and a possible suspect. I think this was the longest uh, loved ones interview we ever had <laughs> because I completely forgot, and I apologize, Chris, to this day. I was just, I had so many questions. I could not stop asking her questions. She could have possibly been there. She, you know, was definitely sleeping with this person, married to the person accused of it. This was her mother. My questions didn't stop. And I, I remember, I, I think it was you, Rob, in my ear going, at some point, we, we've got to keep moving on. And <laughs> I think I that was me. <laughs> so bad because, and I, I even told you, hold on. And this was especially a moment where I just, forgot all about the cameras. And I'm like, you carry the key to this case and I need to know everything. But uh, as you could both agree and attest to this, her roundabout answers were quite difficult to try to get down to any kind of facts. I think that's just who Dorota was in this case. You know, she was, she, you, you, you absolutely described it perfectly, partner. She was everything in this case, almost. She was, you know, after we got into the investigation, you know, me finding some information that was involved in the case, it actually helped me make the decision of where I stood on the case. Uh, what was that? Was, what was that thing? What was that thing that uh, that turned you? If Dorota hadn't heard from her mom over the entire weekend. So this is the day that police, or these are the days that police believe that she was deceased. You know, if I hadn't heard from my mom in several days, the first thing that I'm going to do is go to my mother's house. We're not going to stop and eat at a subway and especially eat inside when I'm obviously worried about something that may have happened to my mom. We're going to go directly to my mom's house. We're going to check on my mom. And once I'm satisfied that she's okay. Then we'll go get food. You know, that was just one. That's right. He stopped for a Subway sandwich and she was pissed. And she was pissed off and and then ate in the damn Subway. So that's that's huge for me. And and it may sound minuscule. It may sound minuscule to most people, but that's huge for me because, you know, I care about my mom. I care about my mother-in-law. You know, as a husband, we're going to go check on your mom first. We'll get food later once we find out she's okay. And it's obvious that Dorota was upset at that time because she didn't eat. She she mentioned that she didn't eat. And then here is the one thing, the kind of thing that just was the nail in the coffin for me. 
when we got the information about this case, it was heavily redacted. You remember that, Fatima, that it was I all do. of the information that was heavily redacted. So I found a report that one of the, the detectives wrote up that was not very redacted. And it talks about how they ran Stephen's phone records. Stephen said on the day that police believed that she was murdered, that which was the 15th, he was closer to he and Dorota's house, which is a, a pretty a, a pretty good distance away from Dero- from Irina's house. But when they looked at his phone records, his phone was showing near her home for several hours during the day that they believed she was murdered. So that's what did it for me. You know, right. that's the reason he had the just, opportunity that Friday. He had the opportunity. And then he gave a statement saying that he was near at his own home. He said he was miles away from that location. So that's that was the nail in the coffin for me. Well, and the reason that I had, it was really difficult for me to eliminate Dorota's having any kind of information in this uh, until that uh, lie detector test, which we know where I stand on those anyway, but I'll give her a little credit with that. Um, you know, it did seem that uh, that worked in her favor, but there were a lot of things about her behavior that were suspect. Some of those things were that when law enforcement first interviewed them, they failed to say that they were at the house that Friday afternoon. <clears throat> she failed to say that they were in separate cars that day and that she had left before him from from the house. And I believe that Stephen had stayed behind doing some things in the house. So that could have possibly been the time when Irina arrived at home. She also failed to return calls to law enforcement. They called both of them over and over for interviews. I believe Stephen said he didn't give her the messages because, you know, my my wife is grieving. Um, And then later... What was really suspect to me was the day that she said she hadn't heard from her mom by that Monday. So she wanted to go check on her, but she didn't call the mom's job first. She didn't even go to her job to check on her. They went straight right, which to would the be apartment. The, which, would be the, which would be the obvious. If you don't think that's something's wrong, that's where she would be, right? That's where she would be. Monday through Friday, she was at work. She was a dedicated, loyal employee. They said she was always on time, and that was one of the main concerns. And uh, Did you get a chance Monday to ask morning. her about that? I can't remember if you ever uh, asked yeah, Rhoda. I did, and she, didn't, she couldn't remember. She couldn't remember, but there's no record showing that she had called, and she couldn't uh, just, you know, when I had said, would that have been something you'd done? I think she said something like, well, I just figured I'd just go to the house and see if she was okay. I don't know. That seems suspect to me. Um, But once again, there was a lot about their behavior. And I don't like to look at just the behavior. Because if that were the case, then Dorota would still be a suspect because her behavior was strange. And the change in her stories were very strange. So what it has to come down to is the evidence. And that's what we tried to look at here. So. One thing that we can say about Dorota is that I think we all agreed at the time that without her testimony in court, Stephen Chabin probably wouldn't have been convicted. I mean, she ultimately went and testified that uh, they were in the house on Friday, June 15th, when Irina, her mom, came home. And that afterwards, uh, Stephen had said over and over again, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And that really, that testimony really did him in. She is just ravaged by guilt. It's hard. Play myself every day. And I feel so bad that I cause so much pain to this family that I don't know how to fix it except get help. I wish she would just be home. 
Poor Dorota. You really do feel her pain. Yeah, Dorota was uh yeah, she was she was heartbroken behind this whole thing. Number one, she's lost her mother. And uh, you know, her testimony is what actually was the the crux of the uh, prosecution's case. So yeah, you know, you feel sorry for her. And she, she holds so much guilt. She carries so much guilt because, you know, she, she wants her husband back and she wants her mother back. So, you know, when you, when you leave these, 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 these main questions still are still kind of open and people are left to their own, you know, to, to draw their own conclusion, like whether or not it really was a homicide or a, uh, or if she died of natural causes, you know, that intensifies that guilt that Dorota has. So, yeah, I, I, I felt really bad for her. She doesn't have anybody else in the mm-hmm. States. Uh, her mom was her only family member. She talked to us about their relationship and, it was a sad, it was a, it was a tough mother daughter relationship. Her mom had high expectations for her and she never fully felt like her mom was proud or loved her, but obviously she knew her mom sacrificed a lot to give her everything that she had. So it was one of those, I think it's culturally, the mom just had a high expectations for her, but the sad thing is not having her mom now not having obviously Stevens behind the bars, but the fact that his family is her only family and that his family has some bitterness towards her because according to them, she's the reason he's behind bars. That's, that's tough. I I definitely feel for her. There was some tension there. I mean, um, I don't know if you caught that moment when she said that she got a $50,000 life insurance policy. You see Tammy just do like a head swivel, like, whoa, I didn't know about that. I don't think Uh, she was aware of that at all. So bottom line is Dorota did receive the life insurance policy and she did receive the condo, both of which she benefited from. And it appears that the family was putting out a lot of money. I think the sister Cammie said that she even took out a loan to pay for some of Stephen's defense. So I would be a little upset too if the one who put him there, you know, his wife had all this money and didn't say anything. Yeah, I felt that the tension was very, very thick at that table, you know, and we were trying to get to the bottom of it. But I was watching the sister as we talked. And yeah, she I don't think that they were aware either that uh, Dorota had received any of this insurance money, which was a surprise to me because they had been, the way that they let on, they had been really, really taking care of Dorota throughout this entire process. Can we briefly talk about the DNA expert that I got to meet with? One, that was incredibly enlightening. Also, I don't know how much I believe it, how easily the DNA spreads. But even this DNA expert was just from the start, kept saying, it's totally possible. She had this DNA under her fingernails. That's so weird. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like, it's the laundry, right? So if something's laundered a lot, then it's not possible. But if it's something like a jacket or something that you just use over and over or a mask, um, then Well, then he pointed out, he also pointed out Dorota is dating this guy for a long time. She's going over his house. She's seeing him even before the mom even knows about it. And so she's coming home, possibly wearing, you know, she's coming home possibly wearing his jacket or even her own clothing that has his DNA DNA on it. So if Irina's cleaning the house, touching Dorota's items from Dorota's items, she could be picking up the DNA. 
I could see Chris's face right now, just like, <laughs> this is BS. But the point is, I, and yes, I, how to get under her nails. I, that's the yeah, first place that, we know we was, always look when yeah. someone's a victim under the nails. Come on. But the fact that it could be explained away in other ways was very interesting to me. This DNA expert seemed pretty confident and dismissing of this idea that, that nobody could just have DNA under their nails unless it was a murder. He's like, no, I don't, I don't think that's possible. I was just like, wow, you would really help a defense in the court plus of he, law. Can plus I he scared you? the hell out, hell out of us, uh, telling us what like lives in our eyebrows. Remember? Oh gosh, Chris, picture. he showed us pictures about the bugs. He showed us photos of the bugs that live in our eyebrows and in our hair. And I wanted to go home and shave my eyebrows immediately. <laughs> I was so disturbed. So, so, you know, look, this this DNA expert, well, you know, look, being a part of this show and learning more and more about DNA that, that, that I know now, uh, it's been enlightening. Fact still remains. Irina has Stephen's DNA under her under her fingernails. And, you know, look, you can you there are lots of ways that you can get it on your fingernails. But the, mo- the more likely is during a struggle. You know, we've talked about how. She was strangled. So what do you do? Most of the time when a person is strangled, you try to stop them. So you and I, I can't I know y'all are why y'all are listening to this as a podcast, but a person has their arm around their throat and the, the majority of the victims will start to scratch the suspects. So that's that to me is more explainable. Or if you can go for the nards and squeeze. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I learned yeah. that when what? I was like 14 from Oprah and I'll never forget it. <laughs> do, whatever, do whatever you need to do to try to escape that person's attack. But the majority of the time that I've seen when a person has finger has skin cells or DNA underneath their uh, fingernails, it comes from a scratch. And we know everybody's going to be asking, did he have any marks? Did he have any injuries on him? Ironically, I, I believe when law enforcement had first interviewed him, they weren't they weren't looking at him as a suspect mm-hmm. immediately. They didn't look for that. Uh, they never mentioned that. And then the next time they see him is a few weeks later at the funeral. And so that's not noted. So just so you all know, doesn't seem like he did have anything, but nobody really took a look. So I've got a question for you guys. You touched on the, the lie detector test. So basically... Um, Dorota is telling you guys that uh, she had been coerced, she had been confused, she has a learning disability, and the police coerced her into uh, pointing the finger at Stephen, and she ended up testifying against him, and she said she could prove it with a lie detector test, which she passed. But yet, I don't know if it convinced anyone. I mean, what is your, uh, I'm just interested in what your feeling is about these lie detector tests and how much stock we should put on them. You know, hmm. it, it, and and the we know where they stand in the court of law, but you know, in our, in our own personal opinions, yeah, I, I was I will I will admit that I was uh, really surprised that she passed it. I was as well. Here's the thing with lie detector tests: of course, they are not admissible for guilt or innocence in a court of law, nor should they be. Right? They could be completely manipulated. But another issue I have with them is someone like Dorota who. She does potentially have some learning disabilities, and you can tell when speaking with her, her understanding of questions or the way that she responds, it is a little off. Uh, Perhaps she doesn't quite understand it completely and does try to answer to the best of her capability. I don't believe it's intentional. So because of that, I also feel that 
in a lot of ways, she may have not seen many of the signs back then. And we also know that when you get married and when you're in love, your judgment is really impaired. (laughs) They say psychologically, physically, what's happening to your body is oxytocin is being released, endorphins. Those are all those things help you overlook truths that you probably would see if you were not so impaired in love. That's what I'm going to say. So so we can talk about, can we talk about the elephant in the room as far as this love story goes? And uh, look, I I, I can't help but have a little bit of a judgment on the fact that she was 17. She was a minor when they started this relationship and he was 27. There is something a little bit off about that. And um, she seems like she was particularly vulnerable to someone like him being young, feeling lonely, not having a lot of friends. I mean, is he a little bit of a Svengali to her? Was he taking advantage of her? (sighs) He sounds like a charmer. Let's just say she says from the start that she was a little disappointed when she first met him in person, that he was a little bigger than, than his photo. He had really thick eyeglasses. It doesn't seem she was really attracted to him in the beginning. And that after only a few dates, she was pretty smitten. So this guy turns on the charm pretty well. Yeah. So, so yeah, with her being 17 years old at the time that they they met, you know, yeah, maybe he was more of a charmer and maybe he, he has gotten into those areas of life uh, that, uh, you know, a lot of women don't experience, you know, being her age. So yeah, I think she might've been a very, very, she was pretty sheltered. Her Her mother was very strict. She didn't have a lot of boyfriends, get out a lot. So he's someone who is, you know, offering her that, showing her that. She, it sounds like she looked at him like a protector, um, you know, somebody uh, strong that she could look up to. And let's keep in mind too, I mean, I'm no psychologist, but she doesn't have a, a father presence in her life. It's always been just her and her mother. So the fact that he's older didn't surprise me. Or the fact that she it looks up to him and he's the dominant personality in the relationship, that's not surprising. And that was one thing that Steven's sister said, that he was the protector type. So if she didn't have a father in, uh, in her life at the time of, you know, of her growing up, she always had this strict mother. You know, I can see why she would become smitten with a guy like Steven because he is that protector. He is that father figure in her life. So this was one of those uh, cases where... We heard about one Stephen Shaben on the first day from Tammy and from Dorota. And then Fatima, you in particular, as you started talking to people who knew him from his past, a different story started emerging. Now, you spoke to Irina's friend Grazina, and she talked about meeting him at her friend's funeral. And was Stephen there? Yes, he was. Is that the first time that you met Stephen? Yes. And what's your impression of him? I don't like this guy was not impressed. He's not like sharp guy. There was also red flag from his talking. Like he mentioned something about life insurance. He mentioned about living in a condo. He said his ex-girlfriend had huge life policy. And if he wants this life policy, he will do something to her. Do you believe that Stephen Chabin is the one who murdered Irina? Yes. It was an interesting interview, but I, I don't know how much I put into that. His behavior at the funeral being strange. Okay. Doesn't make you a murderer though. He's a strange guy. 
You know, I just didn't, I couldn't uh, state that, you know, anything she had told me was really evidence, but I considered it. The fact that he's acting strange, the fact that he's bringing up if he wanted to have all this money, I think at the time what he was telling them was the cops are looking into me. If I was really gonna try to kill somebody for a life insurance policy, I'd do it to my ex who has far more money. Honestly, that sounds like something maybe I would tell people if I was being looked into <laughs> as a suspect. I'd be like, like no, I, I wouldn't kill her. I'd kill her. I'd be one of those that's just like, <laughs> well, first of all, now I know, don't say anything. But I, back in the day before I knew, before I became an attorney, I'd probably be one of those personalities that would say, oh my gosh, they're looking at me. Are you kidding me? There's somebody else who had far more money I'd go after. Because it just, if that's your personality and you just think it's ridiculous, that's something you're going to say. So. I find it difficult to really say whether or not our conversation lead me one way or the other, but it did solidify what other people had been saying about his behavior at the funeral, including law enforcement, that he was very strange. And he was, um, she also talked about him really kind of protecting Dorota and constantly being next to Dorota and like almost not letting her breathe. But, you know, on the other hand, he could just be somebody who cares for his wife who's grieving her mother, especially if he killed her. He probably felt really bad about that. (laughs) So, but I mean, even if it's not an issue of guilt or innocence, it just starts painting a different picture of his character than what we had gotten. Right now, all always, of a sudden, that always yeah. happens. Uh, absolutely. Once we get away from that that table with the family and start peeling back the layers of these investigations, you really, really see a different side of these people. And we find everyone. That yeah. I mean, finding the ex girlfriend was that was pretty important to me. That that conversation really changed my opinion. That is a perfect segue. We're going to take a quick break. You're listening to the Reasonable Doubt podcast. When we come back. Fatima talks to Stephen Chabin's ex-fiance, and she has some pretty explosive things to say. And Chris finally goes one-on-one with the convict. We'll be right back. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Welcome back to the Reasonable Doubt podcast. Fatima, you got a chance to talk to Stephen Chabin's ex-fiance, Sarah. And that was a really emotional and really pretty explosive interview. And I'm, I'm interested to find out how much this weighed your decision, if, if at all. So what was the final straw for you that just made you walk away? We were laying in bed one night and he rolled over and 
had me in a bear hug, but the bear hug kept getting tighter and tighter and tighter until I felt like I couldn't breathe. And then I started pounding on him to let me go. And in that moment, I saw my life flash before my eyes. Sitting down with the ex was helpful in in a few ways. One, I really appreciated her coming forward, opening up, being vulnerable with what had happened to her. Apparently, she's never told anyone. And she had said that she has children now and she wants them to know, particularly sons, she wants them to know this is not okay, this kind of behavior, treating a woman like this. And that's why it was important for her to do uh, this interview, knowing it would be televised later. Another reason it was telling was not just the, the possibility that he was violent or didn't respect boundaries in that way and tried to frighten her. Whatever it was that he was doing, we don't really know, but we know that she says she couldn't breathe, which is very interesting. And I'm sure we'll get into this a little more about the possible ways that Irina died. That was a little interesting that he used this force of almost like a suffocation uh, strangulation by using his um, his weight, his his strength against her. So the possibility that he was a violent person, that he, um, you know, that he would in fact harm a woman, that is important, right? That's, that's the main issue in this case. But another thing that she had talked about a lot that was very important for me was the part about his spending. He always spent more than he had. He lived paycheck to paycheck, but he was about flaunting. He was about flossing things that he didn't really even have. He wanted a nice car, but she says, we didn't have much money. We were living paycheck to paycheck. I was paying all the bills, but he wanted to drive a nice car. He wanted to have nice things. He wanted to be flashing. Money was important to him so much so that he would work really hard to gather items to sell at the flea market, make all this money, and then go and gamble it or spend it on something flashy rather than necessities. And that's one of the things that really ended up, uh, other than this, the nail in the coffin with him hurting her, um, that was one of the main issues in their relationship for many years was the money issue. So the fact that he's that kind of guy, when we heard he's not flashy, he has all this money, it's not something he cares about. Granted, this is years in between but still, it seems like he's still doing the same old hustle for some money. He sounds like somebody who wants some quick, fast, easy money, and he likes nicer things. So is it completely out of character for him to want a life insurance policy, any amount from that, or a condo in Chicago? No. When you tell, when we learn that about him, it's not out of character. And there's the G word, gambling. So when we spoke to Tammy and Dorota, they kept downplaying it. Oh, he's a social gambler. But Chris, you finally had a chance to talk uh, one-on-one with Steve and you confronted him about it. I mean, it became pretty clear that he was a pretty serious gambler. The weekend that you decided to go to Vegas, did you take a lot of cash with you? Yeah, I took a give or take about 25 grand. $25,000. Yeah. Were you planning on uh, gambling with that much money? Yes. So how much would you say you play per hand? I'd go anywhere from 25 to 500 a hand. 
I'm just going to be honest with you. $500 a hand, uh, that just kind of blows my mind. I played next to a guy who was playing 5000 a hand. Uh-huh. So that weekend, how well did you do? Made about twelve or 15000 And that was after paying for the wedding and everything else. But, you know, I guess there are people in this world who think that $25,000 gambling is, is not that much. But here's a guy that is claiming to be innocent of a murder. His family makes it out to seem that, well, you know, he didn't play with, he didn't have that much money. You know, he made it out. He minimized his, uh, how much money he had. He said that he didn't even have enough money to go and buy his wife a ring, his new wife a ring. So, you know, look, I just, I don't know. He didn't help himself much with, with me telling me this, telling me that he, he, he planned on gambling with, you know, 25 grand. Right. And you're going to, you're going to take 25 grand. You're going to act like it's not that much, especially compared to other people there. But also you promised your new wife a house or, you know, a place for just you two. Meanwhile, after you get married, you go home to an apartment you share with another roommate. So it's now three of you in there and you don't have a home for her. You don't have anything else for her. So obviously car, money is an issue. A decent car to get around in. Right. You, know, you had to go back and get get her old car to, to, to get around in. So, yeah, you know, maybe that that was them trying to spin us a little bit on, on you know, how much he gambled, how, how, how deep and me may have even been in debt. We just never know. It just but it didn't help him at all. I mean, when it came to uh, to whether or not we wanted to jump on board and, and fight for his innocence. So to me, the gambling thing is really critical. And we had another case, Virginia Twenter, that was also uh, along those lines because I've been around it. I've been around problem gamblers. And when I was in my 20s, I remember thinking I could go down this path if I don't stop. And I stopped. I never bet $500 a hand. I mean, $500 a hand for someone who has no real income, who's working in flea markets, trying to get by. That does, to me personally, speak to a possible motive. Because I'll tell you, there are two types of gamblers. There are gamblers who lose and there are gamblers who lie about winning. And that's it. So, you know, this, this fun story that he came back with 40 grand, I don't know that I believe it. This guy might've been yeah. desperate coming back. And, yeah. and But a gambler does not make a murderer. I mean, it could. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, say, I'm not saying this is, this is a piece of decisive <laughs> right. evidence. I'm right. not at all, but I'm no, saying it does, I'm it does, it, 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 it speaks it to motive. motive. It speaks yeah. to motive. It absolutely speaks to motives. I know, I know I'm just throwing out possibilities, but what if instead of coming back with 40,000, he came back with nothing and he's desperate and maybe he borrowed some of that money Right. Mm -hmm. and now yeah. there's opportunity. Mm -hmm. And the only people that we can hear that information from is either he or Dor uh, Dorota. And, you know, we already know that they kind of spin us in th throughout this entire investigation. Well, so. Dorota doesn't even seem to know how much money he had before they even got married. She doesn't even know how much money he took to Vegas. So she's kind of left out of a lot. And there are moments and responses that she gives that you can tell. She doesn't have the full story of Steven and, you know, what he's up to and what he has. It sounds like he's making promises to her that he can't fulfill. What we know, and this is something that I don't, I don't know if it was aired or not, but for the audience, what we do know is that that Friday they were at Irina's apartment. And that's the last that anybody had seen Irina was Friday. She left work. She goes home. 
And from there, uh, her employee, I'm sorry, her colleague at work says they had plans for later on that Friday night and that Irina never showed up. So she calls her Irina again Saturday morning and Irina doesn't pick up the phone and she keeps calling and she does say that it was out of character for Irina just not to show up at her house when they had made plans and not to respond. So the, the next time anyone hears uh, or sees Irina really is both Steve uh, and Dorota that Monday morning when they find her body. So this was actually where I was having a lot of issues with the, the lack of decomposition of her body. That part was very interesting to me. I, I would have also expected more if she was killed on Friday. I know a lot of people say, oh, well, the officer saying she was killed on Friday was convenient because that's when Stephen and Dorota would have been there or Stephen had opportunity was Friday because he was busy all weekend. But at the same time, that's the last time anyone actually hears or sees Irina is Friday. So it also but Fatima, I know you dug into all the records. Was he really, was it really impossible for him to get over there on Saturday? I mean, I think no, he said he was at the flea market. Right. It wasn't impossible. He he left. Dorota later says that uh, he did leave her for a little bit. And she remembers, I think, being at home watching a movie. So, you know, the story also just said kept in her changing. She also stated in her statement that she couldn't get in contact with him. Right. That day. Right. That he so, had yeah. taken the car. And mm-hmm. there's different versions. And yeah. right. you don't know which one to trust. So it, it definitely does not help the story and the possibility that he could have done it. So tell us about your solution, because I think this was really unique to Reasonable Doubt and kind of an ingenious solution uh, for the family. You got them to agree that you would have three medical examiners look at uh, all the evidence, all the autopsy reports, crime scene photos. And if a majority of them decided that it was a murder, we weren't going to get behind the case. But if they said it wasn't a murder, we would. And they agreed to it. Tell us a little bit about how you came to that decision, because I think that was a very uh, elegant way to handle this. I, I thought that was the best, the, the fairest solution, because at the, at the beginning of this podcast, we all we both had said and still agree that we couldn't even get past step one in this investigation as to make a determination of, of whether or not Irina was actually murdered. So, you know, we we had the the, the, the findings of the original Emmy. Um, uh, and we brought in our independent Emmy and neither one of them could make a determination. So we needed to bring in more people to take a look at her autopsy and then give us a little bit more direction. So I think that, yeah, that was the fairest way for us to make a, a, a complete decision on what we could do with the Stephen Chauvin case. Right. We didn't have much of a choice. At the end of the day, Chris and I want to follow the leads as much as possible. This is why we bring in experts, right? They know more than we do. That's their that's their field that they work in. And so we had that hurdle from the beginning with the ME saying there really cannot be a determination made. Now, we were to place that aside, Chris and I, in our own evaluations of this case, did I believe it was likely a murder? Absolutely. There were so many things that indicated murder from the room, uh, the bedroom being in disarray. It was, it was Dorota's bedroom. There were books all over the floor. The uh, Irina's purse was thrown on the floor. One slipper was there. And I believe she had one slipper on in the bathtub. The bed was uh, moved like somebody had uh, hit it uh, really forcefully. Everything was just a mess. Everything indicated almost a struggle. And there were stains on the ground, on the floor, in the carpet, which they determined or assumed, I believe, they, they didn't quite determine what it was, but assumed it was blood. Um, 
so there were so many things that she had a hemorrhage in her head uh, and a couple other bruising around the same area that it led to them believing, well, she could have fallen and hit her head, but then would she have hit it on something else? I guess it's possible, you know, if you bump your head and then you keep bumping it as you're, as you're going and she stumbles into the bathroom, it's possible, but the likelihood that she would have had other abrasions, it, it points more towards a murder. So bottom line is there's a lot of things that without the Emmy to turn without the Emmy's determination of murder not would have led us to believe this was a murder but we had to follow the lead that if it if there's a possibility that it was not a murder then we absolutely should help but we definitely but were, but, needed other opinions but neither of you thought that there was really any plausible explanation if it was a murder that it was somebody else I didn't see no, it. Didn't there see were other either. suspects. There were other, well, she didn't know many people, but they right. had mentioned possibly a delivery guy or that maybe she was dating someone. There were other suspects looked into. None of it led anywhere. None of it had this, you know, strange timeline that we're looking at here. Um, so it just, there was, there was nobody else that seemed to have the opportunity or motive. And there was no forced entry here. So it's somebody she knows, somebody she invited in. We know. Is it possible with somebody else? Possibly, but everything points to him if it's a murder. All right. Well, that was really an intense case. Uh, next Monday, 10 p.m. on Investigation Discovery, we do the Evaristo Salas case. And all I can say is you do not want to miss that one. Uh, my name is Rob Rosen. I am the executive producer and creator of Reasonable Doubt on Investigation Discovery. And my name is Detective Chris Anderson. I am a retired homicide investigator and co-host of Reasonable Doubt. And I'm Fatima Silva, criminal defense attorney and co-host of Reasonable Doubt. Thanks for listening, everybody. Have a good week.